Good morning podcast and welcome to a new episode. On today's episode, I want to talk to you about changing lives with a camera. And to do that, I'm going to invite a guest. His name is Simon Eisenbach and he's been shooting for non-for-profit organization over the past few years. He's been putting everything he has into it and today he will reveal to us his secrets. How did he get started? Does he even get paid for it? How does it make financial sense for him to go all over Africa trying to really capture and tell stories that will help non-for-profit raise awareness, raise money to better the lives of the people in the local communities. So if you're slightly excited by that branch in photography and in videography, I think you will love that episode. And even if you're not into photography or videography, I think it will give you a lot of ideas as a creative on how you can actually use your talent to better the lives of people around you. So if you're ready, let's get started. Let's welcome Simon to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you for having me, Pierre. You're very welcome. I'm so glad we get to do this because we met, I think, about a year and a half or two years ago, at a, I think the first time at a show. You were with the Gnarbox team. And I remember seeing your work and the team was telling me, yeah, this guy shoots a lot for non-for-profit around the world. And I was like, damn, that's something I've always wanted to do. So <laughs> this is perfect. Yes. yes. Tell, us, tell us a little bit about what, what, what you're up to right now, because I know you just came back from Ethiopia. What was that about? Yes. So I general, general broad spectrum. I do marketing content for NGOs, mostly in developing countries around clean water, health and wellness and education. Um, in Ethiopia, I was working with an organization called Yezalem Minch Project, and they are a Ethiopian led organization that helps kids that are orphans. And uh, the way that the government calls it is vulnerable children. So kids that are from single-parent home where a parent died or walked out while they were still young, uh, family can't afford to send the kid to school, that kind of thing. And what YZM does is they do everything from school sponsorships, so they'll pay tuition, uh, they'll give kids uh, school uniforms, they will feed the kids every Saturday, And then they also have preschools for kids that are vulnerable children. Um, but then on top of that, they are also expanding some other efforts to try and help si like the single parents of vulnerable children, where they are teaching uh, mothers how to sew and farm and some other stuff like that. So that way the, par the parents are able to then uh, get, a more sustainable future so they can try and work their way out of the situation that they are in. Um, and then at the same time, they are helping the kids get an education so that they can better their future. Wow. Is it, well, when you, when you do this project, is it like the, the goal of those videos, is it to fundraise or just awareness? Uh, it's really fundraising. Uh, so YZM, I mean, Every organization is different, but a lot of times it's it's twofold where you need awareness to get the funding, but the funding is really the big thing. So YZM is funded almost in like a sponsorship model where you can sponsor a kid's school tuition and things like that. I think it's about $600 a year, and that gets a kid in school and they get their the weekly meal and the whole like all of that. Um and then 
they also are trying to do some other expansion uh, things where they are trying to start a couple new programs that I can't quite talk about yet, that mm-hmm. that'll be more of an awareness when those launch. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That's so interesting because I feel like non-for-profit is definitely something, especially as creators, we would love to I mean, I'll speak for myself, would love to get involved into, but making it as a career, can you can you talk about that? Because I feel like maybe non-for-profits are like, hey, we're non-for-profits. Can you do not-for-profit <laughs> and like yeah. not charge also? Or yeah. how does it work? Um, it's every organization is different. And I the way I do it is uh, actually kind of a funky business model where uh, I actually have private donors that support what I'm doing. So in part, I have a donor base that's supporting that type of effort. And then there's uh, the organization will always put something in because what I found in the past is if I've done a job for free, they don't necessarily use the work to the maximum that other organizations have that have put some money in. Um, Having some buy-in is huge. So that's kind of how I do it. I also do miscellaneous commercial work in the u.s so i work as a camera operator on other productions for people that also helps pay some bills so it's one of those that it's not like straight that uh and it's not like the organizations just hand me twenty thousand dollars to do a project i see that's uh i like the idea of having like private donors support those initiatives i I feel that that it would be actually more beneficial than having those donors give to the organization and then pay you back in a way well so i'm actually affiliated with a nonprofit out of north carolina that allows me to give tax deductible donations to uh donors and that's a big mm. thing so that way they're able to get their uh irs right off that oh. they wouldn't necessarily get otherwise yeah yeah Got so it. it's so it's i have a partner the partner organization has a similar mindset where they want to support organizations working in developing countries so they do a lot of stuff like mailing and printing and they also do like engineering and stuff at a reduced cost compared to what like a regular engineering firm would charge and so i partner with them and we're able to kind of help each other out from time to time that's awesome that's really good how did you the big question how did you get into that like what was your first project or idea of even getting there so my first project was actually way before i even touched a camera um my dad built a hospital or i should say designed and helped build because most of the work was done by local people um it, he designed and built a hospital in Mali, West Africa. And that started in 2002 and went to 2010. I started traveling with him in 2007 when he was going over there. Uh, he'd go over twice a year basically to check on the status of the hospital. And then he would do like some specialty work that was picking up surgery suites and things like that that was above and beyond what the general builder could do over there Mm -hmm. um but they really employed a lot of local staff to be able to build and really have it done be done by the people for the people um and so i was traveling with him before i touched a camera because i didn't touch a camera until fall of 2009 oh wow yeah so i didn't that was my senior year of college and the only reason i ever picked up a camera seriously was 
I had to take intro to digital photo because it was the only class that fit the soccer schedule because I was playing division two soccer. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. That, that's a random way of getting into it. Yeah. Like it was, it was the only elective that met on the right day of the week that fit what my requirements were that I needed to get so I could graduate in May still. Wow. That's so interesting. Can you tell us your, the background even further back because you mentioned your dad was building hospitals so what's what was your family or even your childhood like um i was born and raised in upstate new york uh stick your finger in the middle of the body of new york state and you're pretty close uh and i grew up in a two like two parents and a sister and my dad's a civil engineer who owned his own engineering firm and he In the U.S., his specialty is dealing with asbestos and energy performance contracting with schools. So basically, my dad will help school districts around New York State with any sort of mis stuff along those two lines, which really, it's a wide variety of stuff. And mm -hmm. my mom was fortunate enough to be a stay-at-home mom, which that in of itself is a full-time job because I was a massive handful growing up, I will be the first to say. Uh, <laughs> Um, and so I, growing up, I played a lot of different sports and I played cello and percussion. I played everything from timpani and vibraphone all the way through drum set. And I played everything on drum set from jazz to pop punk to hardcore to classic rock. Um, yeah. it was really hard to pin me down. So you had a wide array of interest. I see. I did you. Did you I'm start one of those people go ahead no no please please oh i was gonna say i was one of those people growing up that like as soon as i got good at something i got bored and had to move on so like i'd play a sport for two to three years and then as soon as i got good enough at a sport i'd be like all right i want to go try something else oh yeah oh interesting yeah so like i played soccer baseball uh i show jumped horses like equestrian i went back to baseball, bowling, did a little bit of lacrosse, uh, like, yeah. And then, I was, and then I went back, I played soccer at age five, but then I walked onto the Division II team when I was a junior in college. Wow, that's awesome. How did travel get, get there? Like, was it through your dad or did you get exposed before that? So we always traveled, but it was more domestically. Uh, I'd been going on airplanes since I was like zero years old. Uh, my family, <laughs> my family would always go visit my aunt and uncle in Florida during spring break. And then every summer we would take a vac a two week vacation where we'd fly to a state and rent a car and then drive through a bunch of States and see the sites in a bunch of States and then fly home from somewhere else. Got it. So I've actually seen most of the U S from doing that growing up at that point so when you go to to africa with your dad and and you you kind of like see how it is there what inspired you to actually use those camera skills that you started learning in in school and use it for non-for-profit i think so i think it was it wasn't until 2013 that that really set in um when i graduated college in 2010 i worked for my dad's engineering firm and i was just doing miscellaneous grunt work and i would still travel a little bit Um, but that was still like, I was traveling, helping my dad with construction and the camera started to come along with me. And then I quit working for him in 2012 and moved to Taiwan for six and a half months. And that was actually where I started doing video. I had never really done video before 2012. 
And I uh, came home from Taiwan right before Hurricane Sandy hit, like literally two days before Hurricane Sandy and got stuck where like everything was in like kind of like that chaotic bit for a little bit right afterwards in the Northeast. And Mm -hmm. so I, my dad called me one day and he's like, Hey, I'm going to Burkina in January and your mom won't let me travel alone. Do you want to go with me? I'm paying for everything. And when you have no job or anything and you're getting a fully expense paid trip, of course you're going to go. So what was originally supposed to happen on that trip was uh, my dad was doing a Passover Seder. Uh, My dad's family is Jewish. So he was doing a Passover Seder to show this uh, small university, like the students kind of what some Jewish traditions were like. And the people that he was supposed to be working with had a death in the family while we were on the way over. So like we were on the plane from, uh, you from New York to Paris when they had the death in the family. So we actually ended up passing them in the airport when they were coming, they were coming back. Cause it, once we got to Paris, it was like, we might as well just still go. Uh, yeah. and what ended up happening for me was I would, dr- I was driving around the country with some other people with the NGO and, they basically like touring as they were doing some small projects that they had to do and checking on some other projects that were being done for them. So some things like drilling wells, roofing some churches and some things like that. Uh, And so I was spending a ton of time in the car talking with these guys of like, what are some of the struggles you guys have? What's doing, what's working well here and really kind of getting to know what the kind of like the pulse was of, what they were doing in the country. Mm-hmm. And it kind of dawned on me that the biggest struggle they had was they can't being people who are working, translating things like that. They didn't have quality content because they weren't able to create quality content that could get people's attention in the U S because even back in 2013, we were such a visual society already that like yeah. their haphazard photo that they took on a cell phone that wasn't like, I don't even remember what iPhones were back then, but they still didn't even have that level of a uh, camera yet. They were still like Mm -hmm. three, like three to five years behind us as far as like what cell phones they had. Um, So they were on like the iPhone three G and so they weren't able to get the quality images that could really stand out. And so that was where things started to hit. Like how can I help these organizations do more work using skills that I've started to develop. And that's really where it like came into play. Did you want to help them for helping them or did you see it as a career or were you seeing it as just like, Hey, I might just help them for a few months and see what happens. It was a hundred percent. I just want to help these organizations. And that's still my goal is to work with organizations to help create sustainability in communities around the world. Uh, it's, that's like my end goal of all end goals and exactly how that works. I didn't know at the time, uh, for the next six years, I actually ran a small town production company in upstate New York and basically would do local TV commercials, miscellaneous product, photos, headshots, that kind of thing. And then go do a project or two a year where I was able to escape for a little bit. And then just recently really made this like the full-time push. That's so 
Interesting. That's great, actually, to to hear what you're doing. I'll share my my own experience here. I'll chime in because, as mentioned, it's something I've always wanted to to like. I just think we have some kind of talent when we do videos or photos that not all those organizations have, and I think it's such a down downgrade 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 i don't can't speak but it's such a, a problem for them if they don't have the visuals right, right. To, like get their message out there like you can write a thousand words that it won't get you anywhere if you don't have the compelling image for people to start reading a hundred percent when i went to nicaragua back in 2000 i think it was 16 i was like i'm going for kind of wanted to go for fun, but I also had a friend that was the director of a non-for-profit called Surgeon of Hopes, uh, basically building hospitals and creating uh, special units to do heart surgeries on babies that had heart defects uh, on birth, which is absolutely crazy surgery. Yeah. But um, they had a unit in Nicaragua and I just asked him, I was like, hey, I just felt in a way not bad, but I just like, not guilty i don't know i just felt like i'm going there i want to do something that can have also an impact on yeah. the rest of the the community or the world so i was like hey can i go and and maybe i can create a video or something for you guys or photos and i remember that that was actually a, a lot of fun and and very fulfilling in a way to uh to think that what you create is not just selfish purpose or instagram likes <laughs> oh it's well and it's it's so easy to get caught up in the like instant gratification of social media likes and comments and things like that. Um, and I always have to kind of ground myself of like the work that I've done has literally brought clean water or cleaner water to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Yeah. And that's, and that's a way that I really have to ground myself of like, you're doing things that are greater than, what is just like, hey, I want to get this image for the gram. Yeah. Um, and it's it it's also interesting because I find that while I have a really compelling image, it actually doesn't translate to most social media as strongly as like if I was to post a landscape from Banff or yeah. some some grand landscape. And but when you think about the bigger picture, it's a much longer lasting thing yes that's very true there is always the the impact of an image and the story and and like you might scroll and see a rainbow and just double tap because there was a rainbow and it's full of colors you got right. your you like instant adrenaline <laughs> right um but then you might stop on something that's less likable but you you might go deeper into it i, yeah. I totally agree with you how do you how do you travel with, with gear to those places? I'm super curious. Uh, backpacks. Um, Backpack? So, yeah. Do you get uh, a lot of trouble like I, with customs? I lived in Nigeria, and the customs would be all over me every time I would arrive in the country. I, it depends on the country. Every country has been completely different for me. Uh, so for Ethiopia, we actually got journalist visas, which was the largest headache in the world to get the journalist visa. But the fact that we had a journalist visa, we literally had zero questions. And like, even, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it was. I would have thought the contrary. 
So right. I expected them to like, because part of the journalist visa is you, you don't have to get a carnet, but you have to give a gear list of every piece of camera equipment going into the country. Okay. And I expected when we got there that we were going to have to walk through a list of every single piece of gear going into the country. And mm -hmm. honestly, it was, okay, have fun. Like literally oh, wow. just like, and like when we were going through not just the customs, like the, when you have to like check your visa, like the, you know how when you walk out of the airports, a lot of times they make you like scan your check bags. Yeah. They didn't even make us scan our check bags. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I also don't travel with a lot of Pelican cases and things like that. I, I'm very much one of those low profile. So I use either F-stop gear or Shimoda backpacks. And if I have to mm -hmm. carry a roller, it's a think tank photo roller, uh, yeah. that look like normal bags. They don't look like a camera bag. And then for my check bags, I use an Eddie Bauer duffel bag. That's got wheels and the bottom of it's like hard mm -hmm. shell, but the top's a duffel bag. So I okay. can put tripods and things in the bottom where they're protected, but it looks like just any other suitcase. It doesn't look like, oh my gosh, I got a lot of expensive equipment here. Yeah, which and I think is key It's when you travel to those key. places. And the big thing for me with a backpack is the fact that we're bouncing around here, there, everywhere. Everything's changing daily. Like we, in Ethiopia, we had a, like every day our plan would change. So one day it was like, Hey, we're going to do interviews at the office. We get to the office. Oh, you have to do this interview now, but you have to go to this place an hour away as soon as we're done with this interview. Then you have to come back and shoot four more interviews. Whereas, like, no. the expectation was we're just going to casually set up for the interviews when we get there and then we'll go. Like, yeah. And so, having everything be where like, we can throw everything on our back it makes it so much easier, especially with the F-stop gear and the Shimoda bags where they've got the straps on the side. So you can just stack tripods on the sides. Mm -hmm. Which, which F-stop bag do you use? It depends on the project. Um, so I have the 30 liter and the 65 liter, and then I have the 40 liter Shimoda bag. And I honestly think that the Shimoda backpack straps, like the shoulder straps are a lot more comfortable because on the smaller F-stop gear bags, you can't change the like the fit of the backpack strap. Uh, but the Shimoda, you can actually adjust the height of the strap. So it's better for me being six foot six. Um, mm -hmm. I'm able to get a taller setting where the F-stop gear bags sit like right at the top of my hip. And it, the Shimoda ones actually sit like actually on my hip. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it's, see. A lot, it's a lot more comfortable. Um but they're very similar bags and I, they were actually designed by the same person. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yep. Huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the F-stop bags have been like literally my favorites. Yeah. Um, I have to say they, they, it's my Anja. So it's like 40 liters is, has been so durable. Yeah. It looks like crap now because obviously it's orange. So it's not, if I had a black one, it would still not look as dirty. Right. But, I'm looking forward to their next version of the Anja. I can't say yeah. too much, but I know there will be another one with better support. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the I have all the black ones, and then me being my uh, my little weird self has actually replaced all of the zipper pull cords with uh, neon green. Oh, cool! So that way, it's like subtle, but I will always know that it's my bag, even if I'm like in a room with a ton of people that have a similar bag. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's my, that's, oh, that's my, good. Like, my like little way to customize it, but not be like too like over the top with it. Yeah. Well, one of my friend who is a, like a explorer photographer, if you want, um, or he's just leading expeditions and shooting too, was actually asking me if he should get the 70 liter if I knew it from, from F-stop. And I, I know people with the Tilopa, which is 50 or 60, but uh, the 70 liter, I haven't tried it, but it looked great too. And he's he's someone who climbs the Everest up to the top. Their, their general so. build quality is great. <laughs> like I've had zero issues with build quality and I love yeah. the flexibility of like, and it's, and you get this, like every project you're carrying different amounts of gear. So being able to yeah. have a smaller insert where if I'm not carrying all of the gear, then I don't have to carry as big of an insert. Like yeah, I that's can, great. I can scale it down and have space for other stuff. Yeah, and then if you want to remove the ICU, they call it like yeah. and and just like walk around with that. That's cool. Yeah, awesome. That's that we we're getting like super geeky uh, on fine. the gear, but <laughs> it's something. It's something I everyone's asking me about my backpacks because obviously it's in every single video, right? And uh, I've I said I would do a video on that one day, yeah. one day. <laughs> it's I it's that's actually a video that I'm working on. Um, nice. Like I want to why see why backpack over pelican for me, and then like what I'm looking for in backpacks. Yes, yes, that's really good. Because I you, have. Uh, so many camera bags that it's super easy for me to like do that full analysis oh that's great well i had only one until recently and then uh i got the atlas uh yeah. atlas sent it to me so i tried it it's it's good uh i like it i i love the support on it uh and then i got the diota the city one from f-stop which is actually really compact and you can put so much stuff i was so surprised but yeah. it still feels good on your back. It's interesting. really interesting. Yeah, I, I've been surprised. I, I thought I wouldn't like it at first as much. They're like, hey, you want to try? I'm like, yeah, let's try. <laughs> and, then I, and then I was like, you know what? Actually, I, I'm using it every single day in the city, like yeah. every day. I can have two cameras, the gimbal, and the laptop. Uh, for the longest time, my biggest struggle was like a good day bag that could mm -hmm. carry... A camera, two lenses, and a 15-inch laptop. Because most of the most of the camera bags for the for a long time were either sm like so small it could only fit a 13-inch laptop, or yeah. it was this monstrous like 35 plus liter bag. Yeah, that's that's been me. And so what, what have the, you found? I have the Mindshift Gear like Daylight something or Ultralight 26. And it's this 25 liter bag that there's a removable pouch for the camera that you can put a 15 inch laptop in easily. And a, like a, I can fit a mirrorless two lenses and a microphone in the padded pouch and that oh, other nice. stuff in the top. And it just works. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I, nice. I absolutely like my shift is a think tank photo company and it's got that same build quality. I've pretty much used bags from every major manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone has questions, just go yeah, like DM hit, Simon on Instagram about bags. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> um, I can answer pretty much any question. Do you have you ever run into trouble on location with your gear, either with local police or I don't know customs or? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, what so? 
when I went to the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2017, we had this like special invitation because we were doing video work. And where I was going into the Congo, we actually had to fly from New York to Uganda and then take a private charter plane into the Congo. And oh, well. the way that it worked was the private charter was still treated like a regular plane where if it was a carry-on bag, it stayed on the plane and they didn't check it, but your check bags had to go in and get looked in. And so mm -hmm. they opened our check bags and they see all sorts of tripods and a couple light stands and things like that. And then they're like, well, where's all the cameras? But I don't put cameras under the plane because I yeah. choose my camera so that they can go in all carry-on. And we were like, they're in our carry-on bags. We don't have them here. Like, you, it's not something for you to check and it was this massive back and forth like argument of like well if there's no cameras we can't let this in and yeah um and basically what ended up happening was we just had to leave a deposit and show that like that all of our gear was going to leave the country mm -hmm. so we literally had to leave 500 dollars with them in an envelope and conveniently when we left the country only 450 dollars was in the envelope <laughs> well uh, you you didn't read the fine print there was interest accruing every day <laughs> what, what fine print that that would mean that there was something in writing um but yeah but i mean but it's also like when you think about it 50 bucks essentially for a film permit is not that bad yeah. a deal like no because we I didn't mean, have great. to get film permits I, granted our visas were like an extraordinary cost to get into the country but it's yeah like the visa, the visa fee itself was only like a hundred bucks, but you had to get letters of invitation from two or three different people and other stuff like that, where it's just like added up like the costs. Cause you had to pay these people to give you the letters. Oh yeah. Interesting. And when, when you do those jobs, like who pays for all that or who organizes those logistics? It depends on the project. So for Congo, the NGO, knew everyone to talk to for that stuff so because pretty much any because in the congo anyone that comes in the country has to get those letters of invitation and things like that so it's not like it was something specific to the camera equipment mm -hmm. uh, but ethiopia it was my responsibility to deal with all of that for the journalist visas that we had to get and it was a massive headache that thankfully i was able to get in i was able to tap my uh, filmmaking networks on the face of books and I was able to get a fixer in country that actually had to like walk the papers from office to office to get all the signatures that were needed. Oh, wow. But the papers had to get sent from the consulate in New York to an office in Addis Ababa then he had to go there and get the papers and walk them through the various offices that had to sign the papers. That's like a $150 FedEx, right? Um, <laughs> well, they, they, I mean, they, DHL. they scanned and sent it, but like, they, oh, good. but it good. was, I had to turn the papers in, in New York in person. Then right. they scanned it all and sent it over. Then he had to pick it up and I had to pay for him to like taxi around, go to the internet cafe to get stuff like, like, it was not cheap to deal with all this stuff. I think I think for our three visas, the actual visa fee was like $30 a person, but it ended yeah. up costing $700 total by the time like all was said and done. Oh my god. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. 
That is crazy. I it's it's kind of surprising how like a lot of countries like developing or like who have I would say are a little bit in 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 trouble politically sometimes get really difficult to get into and it gets very expensive. Oh yeah. Which you wouldn't think. You would think like oh it's everything's like nothing's perfect so it's going to be easy but it's actually everything's the, a country. The and I I don't know if you've experienced this with your travel. I've never I've never had a carry-on bag weighed in the US. However, I've had exponential times where I've fought with gate agents that my carry-on bags were too heavy coming back from countries. <laughs> and I look at them I've, and I'm like... I've had it in Japan, man. <laughs> they're literally like, I'm literally like, I got this bag here with no issue. Like, zero issue. How is it magically that because you're checking me into my flight that this bag is now an issue for the plane? Yeah. And then they just look well, at... Well, that's, that's a big one, right? Especially when you have the cameras in there. It's right. never the right weight. Oh, no. I mean, I our, we had, for Ethiopia, it, we had three like full carry-on bags and two personal item bags. It was a three-man crew. We had an FS5, three A7Ths, two A7R3s, an RX100, and an Insta361X. Then we also had 270 to 200s, 224 to 105s, 216 to 35s, 20, uh, 24 to 70s and a bunch of different primes. Like, that's not a light amount of gear. No, that's super heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and that was all in three, essentially three backpacks. What do you, how do you get out of situations? How did you get out of it? Um, Ethiopia, we did, actually didn't have any issues. Uh, like, uh, we were super pleasant to the check-in agent and the whole nine yards when we got in. And the guy was like, oh, what were you guys doing here? And we explained what he was doing. He's like, awesome, you guys have a great one. But in uh, Burkina Faso, where I've done a lot of work, it's probably where I've spent the most amount of time. Um, sorry, that was my dog. Uh, the uh, uh, check-in agents always fight us, but thankfully the NGO that I work with actually teaches English to airport staff, like airport security. Oh, wow. And so literally like the military staff was just like, hey, you just let these guys go. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Like Got they it. literally were That's like, you need to, good. you need to stop harassing them. And we're like, okay. But, <laughs> but usually it's just like a matter of like having a conversation of like, we got this here. And like it, sometimes you end up having to pay like a small fee, but it's not terrible. Um, but yeah. I've been able to get my, I've been able to talk my way out of it most of the time. Got it. I see. Uh, let's talk about the creative side of, of things when you're shooting these projects. Do you have like a set creative, let's say, guideline and like the whole like film or or like short film that you have in mind before you leave, or or does so it unfold? You're going. We have a ballpark framework. the The thing I've learned over the years is nothing will ever happen the way you envision it because things change every single day when you're there. So a lot of times when I'm working with an NGO before we go over, we're figuring out what their goals are for fundraising, where they want, like, organ like what their programming is going to look like in the next couple of years, things like that. So a uh, perfect example was, like, in the Congo, we were doing coffee, clean water, and some general uh like hospital improvements. So we know like these are the topics we're trying to cover. We don't know exactly how we're going to tell those stories yet or like how we're going to cover those topics yet. 
but we know that mm-hmm. like that is the topics we need to try and cover. So that way, when we get there, we can start to look at what's actually there for us mm-hmm. to uncover uh, and so on. Does that make sense? So we've got a, yeah. ju- a general idea. It's just that exactly how it comes like to fruition is up in the air. And that even changes when we're there because you never know who's going to be available, what resource, like where you're going to be able to go and that kind of thing. Um, because like in the Congo, we were able to get out to this pygmy village that like we had to have one person that the hospital knew that knew the people of the pygmy village go out and talk to them three days ahead of us going out there asking if it was okay if we went out to meet this village because the pygmies if you go in and announce they literally just disappear into the woods got it (laughs) because that's that's kind of how they've survived through the last couple thousand years is they just Mm -hmm. they nomadic kind of like they just are able to disappear and hide um and so this one pygmy village has a protected water source that we wanted to go see and talk to the village leadership about how it has impacted their community. And so we didn't know if we were going to be able to do that. We knew we wanted to do it, but we didn't know if that was actually going to happen. Thankfully it did happen, but you have to plan for like, what is, what are we going to do if this doesn't happen? That kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So you got to have all of your backup plans. And then even then there's times when it's just like, well, we're not going to cover this nearly as well. Um, in Ethiopia, we were trying to get a bunch of footage of like kids in school and we were only allowed to shoot certain kids in each classroom during an actual school day. So we couldn't stage it to where like we couldn't shoot a wide shot of an entire classroom. Oh, wow. So it's just a matter of adapting things to be able to like tell some of the story, but not like, like be able to tell the point that you need to get across, but not like, like, uh, keep kids identities safe and things like that for kids that were not necessarily Mm -hmm. approved for being a part of the project. Oh, I see. Yeah. We we only had permission to shoot certain kids that were involved with YZM's programs. Well, that's interesting. How do I know from my experience, like those countries are, are just literally 180 degrees from whatever you can imagine or whatever you can live here in the U S what do you, how, how's your experience when you're there and what do you take back home? How does it impact you being there and, and coming back? I'm, I'm super curious. Um, every, I, I pick up something different from every project. I think the biggest thing that I always come back with is that I completely underestimate a lot of stuff. Uh, the people are always so welcoming and inviting. And like even, even though they have next to nothing, they would give me the shirt off their back if I needed it a lot of times and yeah. it's so different to western culture where it's like take 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 me 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 that mm-hmm. it's almost hard to come back sometimes um and then also the culture is so community driven that like i come home and if i'm st- stuck in front of the computer for like three days essentially i'm like i need to go talk to people i need to be out with people <laughs> like I need that social interaction because you just get so used to the community aspect of it that it's, uh, it's huge. And I honestly think that that's part of why they're happier than we are because they Mm -hmm. are so 
uplifting and community driven that they are just generally happier people yeah that's so that's a paradox let's let's dive into that happiness paradox it's that shocked me when i went to nigeria a lot of like i went to nigeria when i was 22 yeah first time ever yeah in like an environment like that and i went to literally oh you won't say the worst place but like it's port harcourt and if anyone knows nigeria port harcourt is already in the night in the delta of niger where you have most of the oil companies like doing business the town is basically a giant slum and apparently i didn't get to experience it the whole delta is full of oil and and so you have that mix between like people who used to live there and the companies who like kind of like try to do business and the communities who try to save themselves save themselves as communities and so it's just a giant mess and every time you have like kidnapping and stuff happening it's usually there and (laughs) so i had a lot of things shocking me but one thing was like there was this joy of living that was kind of expressed almost every day that very much surprised me have you found that out in many countries uh pretty much everywhere uh i one of my favorite things is anytime i get to experience like a party or a celebration of some sort it is the most fun that i've ever had like dancing music like hours on end all night long doesn't matter what country you're in whether you're in an urban setting or a rural setting they just know how to party and it's just you see all of the joy and happiness and again like that community aspect of it like everyone's out just laughing having fun uh until ungodly times of the night which when you come back you're like let's go to a club and (laughs) no one speaks (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's it's i mean it's totally different i i couldn't even tell you the last time i went to a club in a western country (laughs) yeah it's uh, one thing i i will share that is um at least back in nigeria what what was funny is something would always go wrong always Oh, like there's always something that breaks. And that's something that I take so much for granted being in Europe uh, back in the days. I would appreciate so much coming back into a home and have the light switch go on, the water come out of the faucet and have a a clean shower and and just toilets working. It seems so obvious to anyone, but just having electricity for more than 12 hours is incredible. The... uh... There's a saying in Burkina called Wawa, West Africa wins again, because <laughs> things just break. People are late by like two or three hours. You name it. It's just things happen and it's just, it is what it is and you just have to roll with it. Yeah. I think it teaches you a lot of patience yes. as a Westerner. Oh, but it's, I, it teaches you patience, but then it also makes you realize just how regimented we've become as Westerners mm-hmm. that... Like once you get out of your own way and relax and start to like enjoy the slower pace, it's really hard to come back to regimented schedules True, because you get so used to like in Ethiopia, whenever the driver came to pick us up was when he came to pick us up. It was supposed to be nine o'clock, but some days it would be nine 30. Like <laughs> it, it was what it was. And so it was, you just learned to roll with it and it also makes you develop relationships more because the fact that it's a slower pace, you have more time to interact because you're just hanging out. You're not, this is, you're not go, 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 go. It's 
how's your day going? How's the family? Like you're just killing time, which opens up that deeper relationship, which I find is the things that I remember most about my trips is those deeper relationships that I develop over time. And like a perfect example of how that's benefited would be in Burkina Faso. There's a school in a village called Pundu that is where we always stay when we're working in this part of the country. And I've probably been there four times and mm-hmm. where we've stayed at the school and the teachers at the school, I was there in November of 2018 and within five minutes of us showing up, the teachers were out greeting us and they were harassing me within five minutes because of the fact that I was 30 and still not married. <laughs> I'm like having the relationship to where that is like, not like, like it's, it, it feels like you're just like messing with your friends. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just, yeah. it, it didn't feel like this weird, awkward conversation. It's just like friends messing with each other. And yeah. you don't get that unless you have that deeper relationship that lets you have like real conversations. And True. I think when we get so focused on the projects, that's where that's something that gets go or that's something that goes missing because it's just easy to, okay, we got to focus on the project. Yeah. Do you, do you find it, do you find it easy uh, or are you able to integrate that in the work you, you create behind it? Like that feeling? Sometimes, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard and it depends on the community and how we're trying to make the project come together. Uh, cause it depends on if it's, if it's something that we can relate into what's the topic that we're doing, then yeah. Uh, sometimes we're able to get that in and really showcase it. Um, it's also a delicate balance of trying to show the positives that are going on and really try and showcase like, here's the growth that's happening in these communities. Hmm. Cause I try to, I try to stay positive. Uh, yeah. like it's, there's the, the age old, like poverty porn that you hear people yeah. talk about like, and I try my best to avoid that. Like, here's this sad child on screen. Like I, I, I'd much prefer to keep it that like positive and sometimes yeah. trying to keep the positive, but also like the realisticness of the deeper relationship is hard to like mesh together because there mm-hmm. are times when having the deeper relationship, you're talking about things that are less pleasant. Yeah. Good. That is interesting. How do you see the, um, uh, in terms of like creative control when you create those videos um, and then you come back, so you, you finish your edits, um, how do they use those videos? Do they use it for social media or is it is it like mostly internal? They use it everywhere. So everywhere, okay. Uh, social media is a big, it's a, different pieces get used different ways. So uh, pretty much everyone uses the stuff on social media, but they also Mm -hmm. use it direct with like their email lists. They use it for in-person things. Like if they're speaking at a church or they're having a gala, uh, things like that. E4 project is the org I worked with in the Congo and they actually used the video and the imagery as part of a grant writing process. And they actually submitted the stuff with their grant application for uh, $22,000 grant that they got to help them get a brand new truck. Because at the time when we were there, their truck was a 1982 Land Rover <laughs> that went, when we were there, the transmission was sitting in the front seat because it had broken. 
Oh wow! And they okay. had it, and so like it just wasn't a sustainable vehicle. And so yeah. we showed like the contrast of what they could do with a brand new Land Cruiser Series seventy nine, which is basically a Land Rover Defender. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the Toyota version of a Land Rover. Mm-hmm. Um, and we showed because we had borrowed a brand new truck that was literally like four months old, and so we were showing like where we're able to get with this truck and so on, and then contrasted it with like, but here's what the current situation is. And so being able to show that difference helped them with the grant because the grantor was like, okay, we see how big of an impact this can have. Makes sense. Uh, I, I kind of have two, two questions in in one first, uh, let's ask it for everyone. If someone wants to get into that, First, like either travel to those countries. Do you have tips for them? Um, first, it, I if you if you want to get into NGO type work, my biggest thing is find topics that you're passionate about. Find something that really actually speaks to you. That that way you are actually emotionally invested in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's a big one because. Just going for the sake of going, you're not necessarily going to tell the best story to help these organizations. Um, as a professional, obviously, you could find a way to tell a story, but it's if you're not fully invested in it emotionally, you're not going to be as good. And then if you want to travel to these countries in general, mm-hmm. um, you may want to start at some of the slightly more developed areas. So countries like Senegal and Morocco are much more ready for tourism than some of the other countries that I've been just because places like DR Congo are so difficult to travel. Actually, Ethiopia is a pretty good one for a first time going into an African country. Um, But really take the time to be an open book. Don't go in with pre like, oh my gosh, I'm going into rough it, like this is Africa. Because honestly, a lot of Africa is more developed. I go to the extremes. Um, It'd be like if someone from Europe was coming to the US and going to like the middle of Montana is where I go. Like, uh, but there is a way to go and learn and find ways, like look up nonprofits that are in an area and reach out and be like, hey, I'd love to see what you guys are doing. Uh, I, I've had the relationships ahead of time, but I'm sure that if you were like able to look up like a compassion or something like that, that's like a bigger organization, you could probably Mm -hmm. get a tour of their office at, in a foreign country, if they, it's where they're doing a lot of work and to get a grasp of an idea of like, this is what they do in the country. Interesting. Um, I, again, don't quote me a hundred percent on that because I, I haven't done it, but That's that's a way you could get in or and start to get an idea of like what really goes on in a place like this. Uh, Got it. But if you want to do this specific work, find a topic and then start to research NGOs that do that type of work. And I guess everyone like for those interested might be asking them, so can you make a living off of that? particular part or do you recommend like keeping the commercial part and and doing that like on the side a hundred percent keeping the commercial in some capacity it takes a long time to develop the revenue streams to be able to do this in a more full-time capacity okay Uh, i mean i'm i'm still doing commercial work i'm just doing very different amounts of commercial work now than i was doing uh 
that lets me do it. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's also, I'm working on diversifying my revenue streams to where I'm getting money in six different ways based around what I do overseas. And that stuff takes a long time, as you understand with doing podcasts and YouTube and everything like that. Like mm-hmm. it's a lot of work and a lot of time to develop to where you're actually making the money to do it. Yeah. And, yeah, definitely. And keeping the commercial gives you like that little bit of extra. I've got cash in my pocket that you wouldn't have if you were just trying to make a go at it right away. Mm-hmm. Like if I cool. if I tried to go at it right away in 2013, I would not. I would be having a nine to five because I would have burned out and I wouldn't have any money. That's a great piece of advice. Yeah, that, that I, f- I see a lot of people DM me. Hey, I want to be like I want to be you, and I'm like, first, you don't want to be me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like second, it's... you want to be yourself, and third, do not quit your job today. Please work on the side and do that on the side until you first get a grasp of. Do you actually enjoy working with your camera because your camera does not become your fun element anymore? It just right. becomes a work tool. And that's right? and that's something that a lot of people don't understand if they're not doing it full time. Like. Yeah. Do you, yes, you're doing it for fun right now when it's your entire paycheck and your livelihood is based off of it. It's not the same. Um, and initially like, and I, I'm sure you understand this, like it, it's really lonely a lot of times. Like when mm-hmm. you're, when you're sitting at your house editing by yourself, like knowing you have to get this content out, but it's literally just you and your computer. Like it's a lot yeah. more lonely than people realize. Like they see, the photos and the videos of like, Oh, I'm out here doing this. And you're out a lot more than most people. Um, yeah. But like when you're like, Hey, I shot this in November, but I'm still editing this content two months later. Whereas most days it's just me at my computer in my spare bedroom. Like it's not, it's not as glamorous as people think. It's not, I'm always at these crazy locations having fun. It's a lot of, work that goes unrecognized yeah it's the tip of the iceberg is being on location (laughs) yes yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and it it is it is true like anything that's a little bit entrepreneurial can be very very lonely and has to and pushes you to work on yourself more than anything else in my opinion a hundred percent and it makes you realize a lot faster what's important to you yeah 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 that's true that's true and that's where personally i realized that I I thought I, I'd like to be alone, like or like to work alone. I enjoy working alone, but I enjoy a lot more being surrounded with my people. Right. I I miss um hang on one second. So when I ran the production company in upstate New York, I actually had an office building and I had a full-time employee for a while. And yeah. the thing I loved about having that space and the and the staff was it gave me the freedom to experiment where I could quickly bounce an idea off someone and then get gauge how well it could actually work. Having having the office space and the employee, I was able to bounce ideas off of that person a lot faster and gauge how well it would work. Whereas now it's like, oh, I have to go upload to Frame.io find a couple friends that have a free minute, uh, wait for them to respond and so on. So it, it just takes a lot more than like run downstairs. Hey, what do you think about this idea? And then run back upstairs. Yeah. Um, and 
that's one of the things I miss about that type of setup. And it just is not feasible right now. Um, I love the teamwork, but I also love being able to like get in the zone and just edit. Yeah. I think that there is a, there is a balance that's, I find can be very tough to find, especially when, I mean, on my side, I, I try to push out a lot of content. I have the family things also yeah. happening. So it's like, you want to get out there in that, in that co-working space, but, or for example, but then you end up like getting stuck for like half a day in your, <laughs> in your room editing. And then you're like, well, it's not worth going out anymore. <laughs> right. That's how you spent three days in your house. <laughs> right. Well, it's like when I, when I made the jump, to going more in the travel NGO world. I actually moved from upstate New York to just outside Philadelphia. Okay. And the reason for that was I wanted to be more accessible and be able to travel a lot more easily because yeah. it was a real big hassle trying to travel from upstate New York. Um, I found that I was usually flying through Philadelphia anyways, um, but with that meant that my, my monthly expenses basically doubled. Oh, So whereas I used to be able to like have that space outside the home, I'm now paying that in my rent. And so it was one of those things like, do I rent a small place that is still expensive, but it wouldn't like, I could still get a co-working space and I would lose some money or I can have a slightly bigger space and have a better work from home environment. Yeah. And so that was one of those things that I had to figure out when I was looking at making the move was, what what how does that really going to benefit me short term so that way it can set me up for long term yeah that's that's again very good thinking like what is going to benefit long term versus just now yeah that's great um simon i'm going to be super mindful with with your time um and so i i kind of want to ask a wrapping question around i think around around your work and how would you And I think that's going to be a, a fun gear question because that's the number one question I think you might get and I might get. So I just want to put it out there. What setup would you recommend or what do you use when you go out there on those shoots in terms of camera? What have you found that works best and what do you recommend beginners? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you my setup for what I would do if I was allowed one camera, one lens, one microphone. Perfect. And that is the Sony a7 III with the 24-105 f4 with the Sony ECM B1M microphone, which is like their brand new uh, shotgun microphone. That oh. setup could get you 90% of what you would absolutely have to shoot. It would not be as great in low light, but the a7 mm -hmm. III's low light capabilities would help you make up for it. Um, but that setup would be completely deadly and that would be about $3,500. That's amazing. That 24-105 I feel is a very underrated lens and I, I don't even like play with it just because I I snob a little bit though I four sometimes if I'm very mm. like the, honest. But the thing about it is especially for doing crossover photo and video it is the best lens because it's actually got the optical stabilization in it whereas the 24-70 doesn't have Oh, no way. Yeah. It has it? It has it has the optical stable the image stabilization in the lens. So you oh. combine the stabilization of lens and body, and that's that's a deadly combo for doing like handheld or quick run and gun stuff. Um and yeah. That's that's why that combo is my like if you're if you're just 
if you're getting serious about doing travel stuff, that is the lens and camera body. Um, the microphone is just absolutely insane. Um, the Sony mic, the ECM B1M uses their headphone noise isolation tech to cut background noise, like for microphone pickup. Wait, is it really that good? Because I tried their like old school like shotgun mic, and it it, it is that it good. Opinion. I I can send you a clip that I shot at Condo. That oh yeah, I want to see. It that. was it was literally a test shot. I mean, I've got other stuff now. If you watch any of my behind the scenes from Ethiopia, it was all shot with that microphone. Um, oh wow. Yeah, um, but I'll send you this one clip that was like what sold me with one of their early development ones that was like before it was fully released. I'll send you that clip uh, later. Um, but it blew my mind at how well it cut background noise and just isolated like what you were actually trying to capture. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We want to see that. We yeah. want to see that. Yeah. Okay, I mean, okay, if that's... you go, if you go on my YouTube and find any of the Ethiopia behind the scenes and listen to the talking, that's all with the microphone. That's going to be the easiest for anyone to go and check out. Amazing. So literally Amazing. just, yeah, I just pulled it up. I'm, I'm gonna, I want to test it out uh, one day for sure. I could, yeah, we can make that happen. How is the footprint in terms of height? Because it seems pretty high. It's no bigger than a video mic pro. It's actually oh, smaller okay. than a video mic pro. Oh, okay. Um, if you took cool. if you took the styrofoam thing off of a video mic pro, it's about the size of the Sony mic. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I'm using a Shure VP83 and I have been rocking it for three years. It might uh, be a little bigger than that one. Yeah, is it? Is, I think yeah, it's a little bit higher. I think. Did you actually replace the uh, sh the shock mount on that yet? No, never. <laughs> Why? Because didn't you break it? Oh no, I, I keep breaking the cables. Oh like, okay, okay. I, I, I did the, the ugliest setup ever and I walked to Shure's booth off. one day at NAB and I was like, Hey guys, can you can we do something about that? And they're like, Oh my god, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm nice. like, Well, and then I never send it back because I don't have another one. So oh, got it, yeah, yeah. it's one of those situations where it's like, uh, make it work. Yeah. You don't have any backup. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Simon, thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything or any project you'd like people to check out? Um, um, I would say check out the Ethiopia stuff. That's up on my YouTube okay. channel. Uh, that's, it's the main, it's like the first video on my uh, first like playlist. Um, but I can, I can send you a link for that. Um, the Yezel and the Minch project is an awesome thing to check out. Uh, and that would probably be the big one right now. Yeah, we're gonna put everything in the show notes. And do you, what's your Instagram? At Simon Eisenbach. Cool. It's just my so, name. I'm the only one in the U.S. with that name, so it's really easy to find me. <laughs> <laughs> so the one's competing for that handle. Oh, it's uh, that's good. That's good. So everyone, go check out Simon on Instagram and check out his work on YouTube also. Simon, I can't wait to see you again. I can't Probably wait to at, see you as well at, at another show and. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you haven't enjoyed. If you did, please, please, please share that episode with your friend, your family, your coworkers, your colleagues, your, your groups, your cats, your dogs, everyone. That means the world. That's how we can grow this podcast and have more and more guests. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And make sure you subscribe if you're new to this podcast. With that being said, get out there, go shoot, try something different, try something new, and go say hi to Simon. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, would you like to receive once a week a free short email with my top five inspirations, photos with settings, gear I've loved, and what I've been watching, reading, or listening to that really inspired my work and my life lately? If you want it, just go to pierretlambert.com forward slash top five and you will be in. Every week you will receive that short email to set you off on a good vibe for the weekend and inspire you. Now with that being said, have an amazing day. I'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye.